You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by Open Text Public Sector Executive and Global Government Thought Leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. So if you can picture this, I mean, I'm I'm basically going as fast as I can. My engines are at full throttle, right? So they're an afterburner. And as I'm maneuvering to fight against my instructor, I feel a really just heavy thump in the jet. And almost simultaneously, the helmet comes alive and starts telling me, engine fire right, engine fire right. So now, of course, it's got my complete and total attention. And I was moving around 500 miles an hour and it shot oil. I mean, the pressure was so high that got built up, it shot oil all the way up to the front of my jet. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. Today's episode is going to be a fun one. I'm excited for this discussion. But before we get into that, I wanted to thank everyone that attended Game 2020 and reach out to me about some of the remarks I made on the third day. Storytelling is definitely something that's top of mind for me, and I know many marketers out there. And I get a lot of inspiration from comedians, especially Kevin Hart, because he can weave a story together and really captivate an audience better than most people. If you're looking at getting better at this, I definitely recommend watching some of his stand-up and other comedians and really sit and take notes about how he gets from A to B when telling a story. It's really impressive and also entertaining, which is also what we're trying to achieve and what we're doing. And speaking of stories, I know we'll hear some good ones in this episode. Joining the show is retired Lieutenant Commander Guy Snodgrass. He's a former Top Gun pilot and instructor he also served as the Director of Communications at the Pentagon and was the Chief Speechwriter for then Secretary of Defense James Mattis. He's written a couple books, but most recently he authored Top Gun's Top 10, Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit, and it's full of some really good stories and I'm sure he's going to share some with us today. Welcome to the show, Guy. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Yeah, absolutely. Great to be with you, Brian. Thanks very much for the opportunity. So I mentioned you've written a couple books. I know one of which spoke about your time serving with General James Mattis as his chief speechwriter, but your most recent book is a really interesting one where you fold in some leadership lessons you've taken from being in the military. What made you want to write this book? Um, to me, you know, especially originally when the Top Gun 2 movie was coming out, I saw this as a really just a fascinating natural intersection. And when you, when you look at a lot of, like you said, there's a lot of great leadership lessons that could be learned from the military and applied to the private sector, applied to uh, nonprofits applied to our daily lives. And we've seen that a lot with Navy SEALs. We just hadn't seen that a lot with, you know, the fighter pilot community or with Top Gun specifically. So I, I thought there was a niche there. And especially when you think about 2020 with the pandemic, you couldn't have picked a better year to put a book out like this one, which talks not only about your success in the private sector, but also just your success as an individual with resiliency, goal setting, and uh, positioning, whether it's uh, good times or bad for success moving forward in your life. Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree. There couldn't have been a better time for you to put this book out. And we'll dig into that in a second. But I have to ask you, how much are you looking forward to Top Gun 2? I know I am. Uh, definitely looking forward to it. You know, I, I, I got to be honest, when I was a kid, I was 13 years old when I first saw 
the original Top Gun movie. Uh, I was, it had been out for a few years. You know, there's uh, some scenes my parents weren't too thrilled with, so they waited until <laughs> I was a little bit older. But, you know, I mean, it absolutely influenced my desire to want to be a fighter pilot. It influenced my decision to join the Navy. And, and I know that that's true for hundreds of thousands of individuals in the years since who saw the movie and were inspired by it. So I've got three young kids now. I've got uh, two boys and a girl. The oldest is 13. So not only in my own personal life, but I think just in general, I'd love to see this movie come out next summer and have another several hundred thousand individuals, uh, men and women who want to feel called to serve, who want to pursue a career in naval aviation. I think, you know, it's a really good thing and it's a great way to get people excited about the types of opportunities that are available in uniform. You know, it feels like movies really have a way of doing some of the recruiting for the military community. You mentioned it played a part in you wanting to be a fighter pilot. Why don't you walk us through when you made the decision that this is what you wanted to do and then how you made that happen? Yeah, you know, I think you you touched on something that also underpins a lot of the writing I do. And that is, um, I tend to be a very factual, fact-oriented person, right? I I love uh, researching history. I love writing kind of technical papers because they're easy. You know, it's like one plus one equals two. Is there there a part of history that you're, you're more interested in? I'm just curious. Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I think kind of, uh, around World War II and, and beyond is where I've tended to focus because I find a lot of interesting parallels, uh, with what the United States is going through now and other nations as well. Uh, and also it's because that's the period of time where U.S. kind of rose to primacy around the world. Um, but there's, there's stuff deeper into history that I like to go into as well. But, um, the reason why I, I even mentioned that is because like you said, I mean, movies have a way of really grabbing us because they're very visual, right? They're, they're all about storytelling. And as much as the, you know, romantic story and other stuff in the original Top Gun movie wasn't necessarily the, you know, what underpinned it, but it was those flying scenes. It was the excitement. It was the thrilling nature. So, yes, absolutely. Uh, looking forward to the next one coming out. And and when I think about my childhood, you know, you take a movie like that and then you also underpin it with some of the community organizations I was a part of. I, I was a member of the Boy Scouts, had earned my Eagle Scout. And, and every summer we would go to a nearby uh, airfield where they would do an air show every summer and, or every fall. And that was our annual fundraiser. And so you're watching the blue angels or you're watching the Thunderbird flight demonstration teams perform. And it was just very inspiring. So all that's kind of the underlying and and to your specific question, I just kind of made it a goal around the time of my junior year in high school said, Hey, I'm really drawn towards that type of opportunity. So the best way to get there is through a service Academy, you know, like the Navy or air force or, or army service academies. And so let's apply. And uh, that's kind of what got my foot in the door and got me off to the races. One of the things I've really come to learn through conversations with guys like you is how large a role the debrief plays in flying jets. I know it's not the sexier part of flying. It doesn't get as much coverage, but it plays a crucial role. What can you tell us about what goes on in that room post-flight and how you approach these sessions? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, to be specific, right? I mean, it wasn't a big part of Top Gun, the movie per se, but it was it is a big part of the yes, actual Top Gun school. I mean, Top Gun school is a real place. And, and it's funny because the movie has been out since 1986. And a lot of people think it was just a movie. And no, the reality is there's a real school. And and as you allude to, I cover this in my book as well. The fact that um, of all the phases of flight, whether it's just the basic preparation or the actual briefing, the flying or the debriefing, realistically speaking, the most important part is the debrief. Because that's where you learn those lessons. That's where you can come back. You take off your flight gear you know, uh, you start drying out, right? Cause you, there's a lot of perspiration while you're doing those kinds of maneuvers and, and you just focus on the facts. And so to, to your specific part of your question, you know, I think there's a couple of techniques that are really powerful. One is you 
uh, in a positive sense, you you seek to kind of dehumanize or depersonalize the debrief, right? It's not, uh, hey, Brian, you messed up and I was great. It's you use your call signs. So, uh, you know, like if you're Viper 1 and I'm Showtime 1-1, okay, hey, Showtime 1-1 should have done this instead of doing that. You know, so it kind of takes a little bit of the personal element out and it, it forms a more conducive environment for learning. Um, and I think there's also just, it's great because there's this standard set that since it can be a life and death scenario that you you're you know accountable for bringing up all the lessons you possibly can because not only are you learning and growing from it but these are lessons that can be passed on to the others in your squadron or in your organization and so all that uh, worked really well in that type of organization but what i found that's been great is since i've transitioned a couple years ago to the private sector and i still consult with a lot of uh, fortune 500 companies and others who want to seek to bring those same types of skills into their organizations. Because as I'm sure you can attest, and I certainly can too, from my private sector experience, a lot of times, you know, you're just, you're, you're off and running. Uh, you, you hit the work side or now with virtual presence, you know, you're just, you're kind of running and you're responding to contact uh, as opposed to actually uh, following up with a strategy. And that's where the debrief becomes so critical is to be able to say, are we actually achieving where we want to go? I'm really interested in something that you mentioned in there and, so I wanted to highlight something you said in there, and it's about trying to dehumanize the element of it because it seems like there's more of a push right now, especially in the pandemic, to get more personal with individuals and make that deeper connection. I'm curious to know if you think there's room in the business world to truly detach in those types of tough conversations. Yeah, you know, and the way that I use this as a as a military leader was I would always teach the junior personnel that you know, when you deal with others, especially those you're leading, you deal with your heart, right? Um, you think about the emotional aspect, what's going on in their lives that could be affecting performance. How can you help? Um, when you think about yourself, though, and, and you're judging your own actions, you think with your head. So you can be logical. You can be fairly uh, blunt with your assessment. So I think, you know, that there's, uh, I, that's why I kind of rephrased it. Uh, I think saying dehumanizing is a little bit of a loaded term, and I didn't mean it that way. That's why I kind of followed up with just simply saying what you strive to do is take the ego out. You don't want mm -hmm. someone to become defensive because, you know, there are times where, especially when you're practicing military maneuvers, uh, look, I mean, uh, you know, simulated kill, uh, your wingman dies, something went horribly wrong. Uh, and luckily it wasn't in real life, but that's why you practice. And it's the same thing with a lot of organizations across the spectrum in the private sector is that um, you have these opportunities on typically a daily basis where you're where you're moving closer to your strategic goals. You're moving closer to making the organization more successful. You've got a capture opportunity. I mean, it could be a, a lot of things that are out there. And so what tends to separate really high performing organizations from those that are maybe mediocre or could still have room to grow is this ability to conduct a debrief and say, hey, I mean, of all these things that went great, that was amazing. But we found two or three things where we really could have done a lot better. So what did we learn from it and how do we more importantly apply it to the future? So I think as a fighter pilot, being in the cockpit, making life and death decisions on a second by second basis, it becomes pretty important to detach and assess a situation to really make the right decision in any given scenario. And I know you've had a few situations that, shall we say, brushes with death that you tell in your book. Can you give us one of them? You know, I guess in a nutshell, I'm a very junior pilot at this stage in time. I had already earned what we call our wings of gold. Those are literally the uh, the gold wing-shaped device you have on your uniform, which signifies you're a bona fide pilot. 
but I hadn't been trained specifically in the fighter plane that I was going to spend most of my career in, a plane called the FA-18 Hornet. So now I'm in Lemoore, California, in the Central Valley, and I'm going through that training. And I've only been there for maybe a few months, and I go up to practice a dogfighting flight. And so this is traditionally where one plane will launch uh, with you and you go airborne and you, as the term, you know, sounds like you dogfight, you're, you're in very close quarters, especially when you have two airplanes, you're moving very quickly. You're, it's very dynamic and very challenging. So if you can picture this, I mean, I'm, I'm basically going as fast as I can. My engines are at full throttle, right? So they're an afterburner. And as I'm maneuvering to fight against my instructor, I feel a really just heavy thump in the jet and almost simultaneously the helmet comes alive and starts telling me engine fire right engine fire right so now of course it's got my complete and total attention hmm. and you have to i mean it's a great lesson because you have to fall back to the basics that you've been trained on and so in this case what i share in the book is that uh, the navy teaches you aviate navigate and communicate those are your three priorities so this first step is to aviate and that means you have to make sure that you're safely flying the aircraft and since you have an a, a emergency like this you know i level my wings i make sure i'm not going to crash i'm not going to hurt anybody else and i start troubleshooting the problem i work through some immediate what we call immediate action steps or immediate action items to put out the fire make sure that the plane is flyable then you navigate. That's the second priority. So I have to figure out where I can go to safely land because with an engine fire, you certainly can't continue the mission. Um, we were too far away from my home base. And also because of the engine fire I'd suffered on the right side, uh, there's two engines. So one of the two was down and uh, I wasn't able to make it home. I was losing too much altitude. So I had to divert to an air base in the middle of the desert called China Lake. And then the third thing is to communicate. And that's your lowest priority when you have an emergency because too many people have lost their lives because they were focused on trying to talk or trying to do something that wasn't a priority. So, you know, you walk through those three steps, got the aircraft safely on deck, uh, you know, we safely landed in China Lake. And when I, you know, the firefighters came out, they sprayed it with foam, made sure it wasn't going to, you know, catch on fire. I climb out and I ask, can I get into the right side intake, which is fairly normal uh, just to see what's going on. And you can actually reach into the intake and you can turn the fan blades of the jet engine. And normally it'll, it'll, it'll spin pretty freely. Um, and it sounds, you know, normal. Well, this time it sounded like someone had poured a can of marbles into the jet's engine. It was very clunky, very rattly. It turned about a quarter turn. It seized and never moved again. So you fast forward about a month to two months and I get called into one of the instructor's offices and they share with me the investigation report of what had actually happened and come to find out that engine right before my flight had been rebuilt. And one of the engineers, one of the maintainers had left a rag in the oil sump system. And so when you're under that kind of heavy flight regime, a lot of pressure's already in that engine, it dislodged the rag. It got sucked up into the sump of the oil system and caused a catastrophic blowout. And I was moving around 500 miles an hour and it shot oil. I mean, the pressure was so high that got built up. It shot oil all the way up to the front of my jet. Uh, and that's what caused this titanium-based engine to literally melt. So, you know, there were a couple of lessons here, one of which is um, making sure, you're, you know, in any organization you're doing your job to your best because uh, we lost an engine, nearly lost the jet, could have lost my life because someone didn't do their job right. They left a rag in the engine. Uh, the other part, and that's the main emphasis of the chapter, is um, basically staying calm under pressure. The fact that you always have these life challenges that come your way. And so just like with Aviate, 
navigate and communicate, there's this element of focus on your number one, number two, number three priorities priorities in the right order. And uh, that'll keep you in good stead. Okay. So I got to ask, Guy, you got to help us get inside your head. Your right engine explodes. I would think there has to be a moment in there when you're really fighting the urge to panic, thinking this could be it. You know, I would say that's one of the one of the things that's so really good about the military. I mean, it's it, they do a fantastic job from day one of just truly training you to, you know, we call it um, compartmentalization. And that is this uh, trained ability to, no matter what's going on around you, to kind of almost step outside of that situation and just think logically, think strategically about what's happening and what you need to do. And uh, it, it goes along with one of my favorite sayings, which is that, especially in situations like that, emotion is the enemy of good judgment. So if you get really wrapped up, you get really caught up in a situation, you're, you're much more likely to make a bad decision because you're emotionally bound to it, as opposed to uh, with compartmentalization and what the military trains you to do, which is, hey, something just catastrophic happened. I mean, it's not only that it's a good thing to do, you have to be able to uh, kind of stuff that fear, which everyone feels, right? I mean, uh, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a small part of me in the back of my head which is like, oh my gosh, like an engine fire, it exploded. I don't know what's going on. And this could literally be the end uh, right here. But, uh, and I've had other situations in the cockpit, you know, on a handful about four or five times where I was nearly killed in the airplane. And yeah, it grabs your attention and you think about it afterwards. But in that moment, that's what's so great about that repetitive training is that you fall back on what you know. And if you've trained well, then um, you're much more likely to find success. I mentioned earlier that it seems like there's a large contingent of former military operators, especially in the SEAL teams, that have transitioned into the business world acting as leadership consultants for organizations. One of the biggest patterns I've seen, and they seem to touch on this a lot, is the importance of keeping your ego in check. I know I struggle with this on a regular basis just as much as the next person. How do you go about doing that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question, but at the same time, I you know, I would say once again, you know, the military training aspect of it was so powerful because just like with Navy SEALs, you know, some of the most humble people you'll you'll meet are those elite operators because they just don't get caught up in their ego because typically it's been proven time and time again when you do, that's when you start making really bad mistakes. Um, you become, uh, it's too easy to become arrogant. And I'd always describe for the for the pilots that I led and the, and the sailors I led in my squadron, I had about 240 you know, that, that, that was the biggest dangerous, most dangerous place you could find yourself is when, uh, you become arrogant because your, uh, your competence and your capability begins to, to, to fall down while your, you know, rhetoric increase uh, substantially. And those are the people I tried to avoid were people who were, had huge egos, but that their capability didn't align with it. And, you know, I guess conversely, I'd say the way you always want to be is that your ego is uh, less than your competence and capability. So um, I think that's just, you know, something that can be trained, of course. Um, you know, there's there's a nature within business. I mean, I, I don't think you should confuse this with not being confident. Um, I think that that's a, a huge element about being successful in any business is to be very confident, to be Seems knowledgeable. Like line. Yeah, exactly. But but I think that that's where you start seeing, you know, um, people fall astray is when is when that confidence becomes overconfidence. And that's something that, again, we, we train for within naval aviation. In fact, we would do what's called a quarterly uh, safety board and we, we evaluate every single pilot in the squadron 
to determine, do they have any life stressors? Is there anything going on that might affect their ability to, to operate at the top of their game? And one of the things we would talk about is the concept of what's called an overconfident aviator. And so we would look for any of those signals or tells that maybe someone was becoming overconfident. And if we identified that, then we'd work with them just to make sure we we uh, called it to their attention and just and counseled them to make sure that they were you know, focused on getting back in the books and focused on doing everything the right way each and every time. All right, so let's jump into another piece of your background. You went from being a naval aviator at Top Gun and then an instructor at Top Gun to the director of communications for the Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, as where you served as his chief speechwriter. How did you make that transition? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, that's one of the things I always loved about my military career, and I think this holds true for a lot of in individuals, is uh, they're so diverse. And that's one of those strengths that many military members who transition to the private sector can bring to an organization is that diversity of experiences, that, that diversity of ideas. So in my case, I had actually been a speechwriter one time before. I had come back from my first tour of duty in Japan. I had attended a school for my uh, third master's degree. It's called the U.S. Naval War College up in Newport, Rhode Island. And as part of that, I'd, I'd done well as a writer, and that kind of got me noticed by Navy leadership. And so long story short, the, the chief of naval operations, the, the four-star admiral in charge of the entire Navy, had asked me to interview for the job as his sole speechwriter. I interviewed. I, I got the job. And so I'd had about a, a year to a year and a half of experience in the Pentagon writing speeches. And so I think that's what kind of, you know, it's such a rare opportunity, especially in, in military circles, to be a speechwriter. So it's a very unique skill set. I'd gone back to Japan, as you've already noted, to become a commanding officer. And I spent about two and a half years there. And so when I came back the second time from Japan, uh, I was basically on the market. I'd already had a job. I'd been in that new job for about three months working for a two-star admiral um, as their executive assistant. Uh, kind of learning the ropes, right? I'm still on my way upward and onward, and it's basically preparing me to be an admiral down the road. And a uh, a mentor of mine said, Secretary Mattis is looking for someone who can run his speechwriting team um, at the Pentagon, you know, as the new Secretary of Defense. Would you be willing to interview? And I said, sure. And so that's what basically that previous experience got me on the radar. And then my continued you know, performance in the, in the fighter plane, I think helped seal the deal that I was someone who could come in and, and do a good job for secretary Maris. So it's a pretty cool role. What's it like working for the secretary of defense, flying all over the world, meeting with foreign leaders? It has to be a fast paced job. And I can imagine your career as a pilot helped prepare you for that aspect of it. It sure did. And I think uh, a lot of times, you know, any, time you're on an elite team, you, you're getting a lot of that training where you realize a lot of times life and your career is like a battery, right? So um, there are times where you know you're going to be draining that battery and you just have to put the pedal to the metal and go all out. But you, you still look for those opportunities when you do have downtime to recharge the battery. Uh, working for Secretary Mattis was definitely one of those times in my, in my 20 plus year career in the Navy where it was the accelerator was all the way down. Uh, we would travel, we had an airplane called the E-4B, very unique airplane uh, because it can do two things. One, it's it's nuclear hardened. So if there was a nuclear attack, we would be fine. Uh, the second thing that was unique about that airplane is that it has an aerial refueling capability. So we could fly anywhere in the world without stopping. And we did that routinely. So we would fly to uh, the Indo-Pacific, Japan or Australia. We'd fly to, uh, of course, Europe a lot. We'd fly to the Middle East. And we do so without stopping. And because of the way Secretary Mattis worked, I mean, some of the reputation he has is well-deserved and that he's just a workaholic. 
So you might be in the airplane for 25 hours and we'd wind up working the entire time because that was just the expectation. But you, again, you, you know, you knew you were going to drain your battery during the flight. So as soon as you got to the hotel, you could crash and get ready for the next day. Uh, but it was, you know, ultimately it was a fantastic job because anytime you're sitting with the United States cabinet secretary responsible for national security, and you're in there with his counterpart from Great Britain, or you're in the room with a lot of the senior leaders for the for NATO, uh, Middle East, like I said, Indo-Pacific. I mean, you're, you're actually there where all of these senior leaders around the world are making the decisions that will influence uh, the direction their countries are taking and how we work together as, as a team of nations. And I thought that was just a phenomenal perspective. You mentioned being a history buff earlier. It's got to be surreal sitting in those rooms with world leaders, knowing that at that moment in time, you are part of history. It is. Absolutely, it is. And especially, I would tell you, uh, there's no, regardless of your political leanings, there was no doubt that, uh, you know, being a military officer working for Secretary Mattis during the Trump administration was absolutely <laughs> You know, for good or for ill, you know, history being made. I'm sure that depends on on your perspective of what side of the aisle you ascribe to. But yeah, I mean, you knew you were there for history. And I, you know, talking about uh, looking back through history, one of the sayings I thought was great was Winston Churchill, because he was a prolific writer, especially after his time, uh, you know, being prime minister. And he said that he fully expected history to be kind to him because he planned to write most of it. And so that was one of the reasons why when I stepped out of Mattis's office, uh, not necessarily because of myself, but I mean, I just felt I had learned so much from reading history. There wasn't a lot of history being written about the U.S. military and specifically about this period of time. And so that's why, you know, my first book called Holding the Line was about the experiences with Secretary Mattis working in the Trump administration, the, the positives and the negatives and what we learned from it. So I wasn't going to bring it up, but you mentioned the Trump administration and at this very moment, there's a little bit of, and we'll call it instability in the Pentagon with Secretary of Defense Esper being fired, and then the changing of administrations. With your experience working in the Pentagon, how do you think this is all being handled inside those walls? Well, I, I think the honest answer is, uh, I guess, if you're an American uh, who cares about national security, you should feel confident knowing that there are, you know, tons of men and women who are professionals who are around the world making sure that, you know, we're defended day in and day, in, day out. So I don't think that there's a significant change to that. I would say, however, that if you care about the future of America's military or the direction it was going in, that kind of instability does have a, an impact. You know, when you think about the fact that with Esper's firing, that was essentially the fourth secretary of defense of Secretary Mattis, or excuse me, uh, President Trump's tenure, and it's just when you have such a rapid turnover and senior leadership, it's very hard to have a stable footing. It's hard to you know, keep America's military moving in the right direction. And so I think that that's one element that people have said that they're looking forward to with the changing of the guard into a new administration uh, with President Biden or President-elect Biden and President or Vice President-elect uh, Harris is the fact that they're, you know, it's a little bit more of the kind of the normal return to the status quo when it comes to at least policymaking and uh, relatively speaking, a lack of surprises. So, um, but, but there's just the reality that, um, yes, you can make some significant moves if you're kind of chaotic, but, there, but that chaos comes at a cost. In your role as chief speechwriter, obviously you wrote remarks for General Mattis, but you also wrote for other top government officials, including President Donald Trump. How do you channel their tone and style or even delivery when you have to write for such a diverse group of people? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that uh, made me 
and made people like that I worked with uh, really good as fighter pilots was the ability to be observant, uh, to be very thoughtful and deliberate with your actions. Um, you know, you study hard, et cetera. And so those same basic skill sets pay off when you get asked to be a speechwriter. And that is um, you you conduct your your due diligence, right? If you're an attorney, you're doing due diligence. So one of the things you do is you is you go back through history and you find as much as you can that your principal has written. So for Secretary Mattis, he was very easy because he's an incredibly consistent individual. So you're reading through his previous speeches. I, I mean, frankly, I would learn his mannerisms, his facial tics, everything, because it he's a very stoic individual. He didn't necessarily share a lot verbally, but you could tell by his body language or his facial expressions what he was really thinking. And that meant you could become predictive and you could be an even better speechwriter because you basically knew what he wanted from a meeting or uh, anything else that he was having with senior leaders. Um, I will tell you what's interesting about writing some speeches for President Trump is that um, I always focused in on the military aspects of the speeches and I wrote them specifically not to be Trump's voice per se, but to get the policy changes or the policy words that we wanted to the public through the president's mouth, right? So if basically, if you think about it this way, if, the, if President Trump takes to the podium, gives a formal speech and he says what the U.S. military needs him to say, then you can always point back to it and say, well, you know, the president said this on November 26. So, you know, that's a very powerful thing. And, and that's I would work with the White House speechwriters to craft the, the message that Secretary Mattis needed or that the U.S. military needed for President Trump to say. And of course, they and President Trump himself would have the final say on what he actually would put out. But uh, and, and several occasions, and I share in my first book on a couple of occasions where it worked out very, very well. So in there, you referenced working with the White House to ensure messaging is all in alignment. But based on one of the anecdotes I read in your first book, that wasn't always seamless. I seem to recall an interesting narrative about how Space Force was created. Can you tell our listeners that story? Yeah. So this one's interesting because we were, President Trump had mentioned on several occasions behind closed doors with uh, then Secretary Mattis, uh, the previous Secretary of State, a guy named Rex Tillerson and others, that he was interested in creating a space force. He, I mean, to be honest, he, he really just wanted to create something new that he could always point back to as, hey, I'm, I made this. And so Space Force had caught his attention. So we had a big event at the White House coming up. We knew he was making an announcement regarding space. And, and this is, I think, one of those lessons learned that are powerful because it kind of tells you what not to do. And that is um, one of the elements I captured in my first book is that there wasn't a lot of coordination within the Trump administration. Uh, a lot of times the president could catch people off guard. And that's what happened here. In that when the president takes to the podium, you know, we'd already asked the White House, what will he announce? You know, look, we're the Department of Defense. We're one of your we are your largest department within the federal government. Uh, we want to make sure we're aligned, that we're saying the stuff that the president needs us to stay, et cetera. Um, so what will he announce? And they said, oh, he's announcing something about, uh, you know, the uh, modification and, and monitoring of traffic in space. And we're like, oh, OK, that's kind of a that's, you know, to put it uh, in layman's terms. Yeah, it's, that's a nothing burger. Right. I mean, no big deal. Um, and so no one had this expectation. So then President Trump surprises everyone when he gets up and announces not only that, but then he announces uh, he asks, where is General Dunford, who is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time, right? A, a four-star Marine general who's running essentially the U.S. military. And he's like, where's General Dunford? You know, we're making, you know, the U.S. Space Force. That's that's what I'm saying. You, you got me? <laughs> general Dunford's like, yep. And I'll never forget, I mean, literally five minutes after this press conference concludes, uh, the White House Chief of Staff at the time 
a guy named General John Kelly, who had also been a retired Marine Corps general, who knew Secretary Mattis very well. He called over uh, and said, hey, surprise, had no idea this was coming, but he just created the Space Force. And uh, so, you know, that was one of those elements where it was interesting because all of his, all of President Trump's advisors were advising against it because of the duplication of bureaucracy and other things. But the president uh, decided to make a surprise announcement. And then you, you watch as the federal government has to move to catch up. And little did he know he would also be creating a new Netflix show at the same time. <laughs> That's right. Steve Carell. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's talk current state. Tell me a little bit about your company, Defense Analytics, because you have such a rich background you're bringing to the table. What are you guys focused on? Yeah. You know, it's been fun because like you said, with when you have these capabilities and you have a, a, a background of, or I guess a wide background of experience, um, it allows you to really just kind of do the fun stuff. So it's everything from what we've worked with some Fortune 500 companies who have sought and are currently seeking to be recognized as thought leaders with artificial intelligence and the increasing use of machine learning and analytics, uh, especially in a data-rich environment. So that's been a big element of our business. Uh, another element that we've done is public speaking. We've worked with, uh, frankly, uh, even worked with some Fortune 500 companies to perform executive coaching. Because like you said, with a lot of these military uh, lessons and the backgrounds and the response to Top Gun's Top 10 has meant people have been reaching out saying, hey, you know, we'd like to work with your company to, uh, to increase our capabilities and, and to increase our return on investment. So uh, it's been across the board and it's been a lot of fun because that's, I think, what uh, continues to make it challenging, but also very enriching is that diversity, uh, not only of experience, but that diversity of opportunity. Besides just the leadership lessons you bring with you, what else from your career do you think is really helping to enable you right now as you go about doing business with the public and private sector? Yeah, I think a lot of it is those time-tested realities. You know, um, my former boss, Secretary of Defense Mattis, you know, he loved reading, uh, he loved stoicism uh, as a concept, and he liked reading Marcus Aurelius, uh, who's, who had written a book, you know, former Roman emperor had written a book called Meditations, which has become popular now that Stoicism's kind of having this comeback. And one of the things that we would talk about routinely, it's also in the Bible, is that there's nothing new under the sun. And I think that that's something that's so fascinating because people are always, you know, naturally, I think, seeking this get rich quick mentality. What is that almost like that math equation that you can use in business that will take you from being mediocre to wildly successful. And to your question, I think what I have found proven time and time again is it's kind of being brilliant at the basics. It's, it's having that vision. It's uh, not only just having the vision, because if you have vision without any thrust or movement, then you're just not going to go anywhere. So, you know, you have a vision and it's that perseverance. It's that willingness to work hard and work longer hours to fulfill those, those goals. And so, um, I don't think there's necessarily like this this crazy secret to either leadership or to success in life. I think it's just being finding your own unique way to be consistent and repeatable with those basics that that make the difference. And so, yeah, that's what I've been focusing on. And I, I would tell you, like, this has been one of the best years um, that we've had as a company is the fact that even in the pandemic, you again, you stay calm under pressure, like we talked about from my second book. So you stay calm under pressure. You assess the current environment. The reality, if you adhere to stoicism, is you can't fight the environment. So how do you adjust to make uh, the most of a difficult and challenging situation? And then you, you know, kind of reorient your direction and then you just keep on trucking. And, and I think that the companies who are very successful, the individuals who are successful can do that over time. They can continue, you know, they care about lifelong learning and they'll continue to find ways to adapt and overcome. You just mentioned some really insightful books and you obviously have worked with some incredible leaders 
Is there anyone that you look to for inspiration or someone you would consider a mentor? So great question. And I'd say the answer is yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I have individuals in my life who I've come across throughout my career, who I really respect and, and who I really like. Um, when I transitioned from the U.S. military, uh, I through the Veterans Affairs Department of the U.S. government, you know, they partnered with a, a company called American Corporate Partners, ACP. And they have this phenomenal one-year mentorship program, completely free, that they have put together where you can partner up with someone in an industry and you can learn from them. And so I was very lucky. I got uh, tied in with the CEO for a very large accounting firm. And and I've had now, I guess, going on four months of that opportunity. I mean, so, you know, and and I would say as to your initial part of your question, uh, reading, you know, I mean, you don't, your mentors or the people you learn from don't have to be the person in your social network. I've learned just as much from Henry Kissinger because of books I've read about the, you know, Johnson and Nixon administrations, as much as I've learned from, you know, George H.W. Bush, because of the fantastic job John Meacham, the author did for, you know, his biography on the former president, right? So, I mean, you pick up these books and and you learn so much that you can then apply. And I think those are the ones I like the most are the, are the books that are typically written by a third party, because, you know, they tend to be a little bit more honest. It's less of a sales pitch. And it's more of a, here were the things that worked, but then gosh, here were the things that did not work, but what we learned from it. Less of a revisionist history, I guess. Yes, absolutely. Guy, I really appreciate the time you spent with me. Any final thoughts you would like to leave the listeners with today? Yeah, I, I, would, I think that, you know, as we head into the winter time frame, you know, we've already had a very challenging 2020. There's no doubt about it. Whether you're a parent, whether you're working with a company or a nonprofit, I mean, across the board, it's been a challenge and a change for everybody. And I think that the kind of recognition that the prediction is the winter is going to be just as challenging or maybe even more challenging than it was in the springtime. So once again, it's it's kind of that internal self-check. What are you doing to prepare? Have you Are you prepared? Are, is your family prepared? Is your organization prepared for what could be a challenging uh, three, four, five month period while we wait for the uh, various vaccines to actually hit the street, to catch up with the immunizations that are going to be needed to to get the country and the world back on track. So really, it's just having that honest introspective period and that honest self-look to say, you know, how prepared am I to get into 2021? And then once this has, you know, and I'm already thinking beyond that, right? So uh, the estimation is probably by late spring, early summer of 2021, the country should be largely uh, inoculated against coronavirus. So it should be a resumption of situation normal. So well, how, what are we doing to prepare for that eventuality? How will business have changed and what can we do to be as successful as possible? So just, you know, again, it's, it's always that, that strategy. You know, if you don't have a strategy, uh, it's kind of like that saying, if you don't have a destination, any road will get you there. So, you know, what is your destination? What is your strategy? And are you taking steps each and every day to, to bring it to fruition? My, my six-year-old listens to the news whenever we have it on and he's heard uh, some vaccines could be out in a year. He's already lobbying for Santa Claus to be the first one to get the vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember hearing uh, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, reassuring kids that, hey, Santa Claus, despite his age, has uh, terrific immunity against coronavirus. <laughs> I'll have to let him know. He'll be happy to hear that. Thanks again for the time today, Guy. Yeah, absolutely. Great to be with you, Brian. Thanks very much for the opportunity. The book again is Top Guns Top 10 Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit, and it's available now on Amazon or wherever books are sold, or you can listen to it like I did on Audible. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at ChittisterAB.
Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.